This morning we're going to continue to read in the book of 2 Samuel. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 14 this morning. So 2 Samuel chapter 14. And we're going to begin to read at verse 23. So 2 Samuel chapter 14. And we're going to begin to read at verse 23. And if you're reading in a pew Bible this morning, you'll find that on page 318. This is God's word to us. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king. And all Israel There was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight would be around 200 shackles by the royal standard. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom, and the daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. And Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the face or seeing the king's face. And then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king. But Joab refused to come to him. So he sent him a second time, but he refused to come. Then he said to his servants, Look, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab did go to Absalom's house, and he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom said to Joab, Look, I sent word to you and said, Come here so I can send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? Would it, would it be better for me if I were still there? Now then, I want to see the king's face. And if I am guilty of anything, let him put me to death. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom And he came in and he bowed down with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. And he would get up early and stand at the gate at the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? And he would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative to the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed the judge in all the land. Then everyone who had a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he would get justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all of the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur in Amram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. 
Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom, and they had been invited as guests and went innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. And while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for the Apophel and the Giloite and David's counselor to come from Giloa, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. And as we respond to God's word, we're going to stand and sing Jerusalem. As you come to God's word this morning, perhaps you're visiting with us and you're wondering why are we in the middle of 2 Samuel where we're continuing our series and we're going to look this morning at chapter 14 and into chapter 15. And as we do this this morning, I think it's helpful for us to imagine it kind of like this. Do you know whenever you watch Bargain Hunt, if there's people here who watch Bargain Hunt or one of them shows on TV, you watch it and you see people make mistakes all the time, don't you? You see them buying a watch for maybe 200 pounds and you think that's never going to make money and then it gets into the auction house and it makes a fiver or a tenner. Or maybe you watch The Apprentice and you, you see the candidates doing something in the task and you know it's never going to work out. And, and we're sitting here as critics and we're able to see all of these things. We're able to see the way that we would do it so much better. Well, this morning as we look at this passage, we're going to see again lots of sin. A catalog of error after error. A failing on the, on the part of King David. A failing on the part of his son Absalom. But in the midst of all of this, it's going to point us towards our God how he perfectly sends his son, the king of kings, the perfect king, and how he restores, and we're going to see how our God calls, welcomes, and adopts. So that's our title for this morning, our God calls, welcomes, and adopts. Often whenever we read scripture, perhaps you're in the Psalms or in one of the letters, you're able to glean great truth. You see it on the page. Our God is a fortress, a mighty rock, our strength, our shield. This morning we're going to see, in the midst of sin, how great our God is. So what's going on here in this passage? To get us up to speed, if you are visiting with us this morning, or perhaps you've missed a couple of the sermons, about 10 years ago, about 10 years back, everything was going well for David, King David. And the kingdom was going well, it was being built, he was reigning, he was a man after God's own heart, he was prospering. And then one day, whenever he should have been out with his troops sorting out their foreign affairs, instead he was being lazy in the palace, and he fell into temptation. And he took Bathsheba, and he slept with her, and that led to the death and the murder of Uriah. And since then, his family has been marked by sin and horrendous sin. We've had adultery murder, rape, another murder, plenty of injustice, plenty of politics and power struggles, plenty of foolish, foolish guidance from men. And we arrive into chapter 14 and chapter 15, and Absalom, who had murdered his half-brother, has been exiled and what happens at the start of chapter 14, you can see it there with me. We're not, we're not going to spend much time working through this, but just to get us up to speed and familiar with what is happening, we see it that, that Absalom has been cast out, 
And Joab, this, this political advisor to the king, he, he knows that Absalom has great potential. And he wants to bring him back. And he knows that King David's heart longs for his son. He wants to bring him back. So he comes up with this plan. Not like the plan that happened earlier with Nathan, the prophet who would speak God's words into King David's life. This time he goes off to this place called Tekoa. He finds a wise woman. He gets her to imitate a mourner. And then he gets her to come and speak to the king. Now she comes before King David. She speaks. And she fools King David. She tricks him into asking Absalom to come back to the kingdom. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with bringing his son back? Well, there's no justice in it. Absalom should face the death penalty for murdering his half-brother, or he should be fully reconciled to the king, either or. But what happens is we find ourselves breaking in again at verse 23, and we see that the king goes and he sends out the messengers to bring back his son, but then his son kind of just sits. He doesn't reconcile him, and he doesn't put him under the death penalty. Instead, he just has him sit and wait. Now, as we break this down and as we make our way through this passage this morning, what we want to see here is this. We want to be thankful people, thankful people this morning here in Hill Street, because we are not banished, but we are called and welcomed. That we are not estranged, but we are adopted. Now, where do we get that from? Look at verse 14 in chapter 14. Like water spilled in the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that the banished person may not remain estranged from him. Now, this is in the middle of the speech that the woman is giving to King David to get him to bring Absalom back. And there's some of this, it's kind of a twist on words, like the serpent in the garden. We see it there, don't we? That the Lord devises ways so that the banished person may come back and not be estranged. And we know that there, and we will see that there is only one way. But it's this truth that underpins the whole of our passage that our God calls, that our God welcomes, and our God adopts. So as we look through this catalog of ours in chapter 14 through 15, we see that King David does not act in justice. We see that King David has been led astray again by this woman from Tekoa. And we arrive at our first problem, And it's this, that Absalom is not reconciled. Absalom is not reconciled. But on the flip side of that, God calls and God welcomes. We know what it's like whenever we have an awkward relationship. Perhaps we have to mend a broken relationship with someone. And it's going to take some awkward conversation. And we have to think clearly and well about how we're going to manage that. Or perhaps on a lesser level, we have that one job around the house, that one job that we really don't want to do because we know it's going to take lots of effort and it's going to take lots of pain and we really just want to push it off. Well, that's what's happening here. Instead of having the open and honest and difficult conversation, instead of attacking that job head on and getting it done, King David just pushes the issue away from himself. He grants Absalom the ability to come back to Jerusalem But then on his return, a stalemate settles in. 
You see, Absalom, he won't repent. He won't come before the king and say, sorry. And say, I acted wrongly. It was not my place to strike out and to kill Amnon. But he won't. And the king, well, the king, he won't make the decision to either kill him or to fully bring him back and to reconcile him. So a stalemate settles in. And then finally we read that Absalom burns a man's field or gets his servants to burn Joab's field so that he can get the attention of the king. He's fed up with this. Waiting, waiting, waiting. What's going to happen? So the banished one, the estranged one, the murderer, the plotter, the son who is cast aside, the son who is a stranger, here he comes. And he comes before his father, and he does not say, sorry. He does not come in repentance. And in this passage, we see a mess, or see the mess of sin. The verse exposes, and the verses expose the sinfulness of our hearts. And in light of this, we see the great glory of God. We see the great glory of our true King, Jesus. Because who is the banished one? Who is the banished one of chapter 14? Well, in this context, it is Absalom. But in the greater context, who are the banished people because of sin? Well, it is clearly us. But under the reign of King Jesus, we are called to come. Just like King David had sent out this invitation to come back, but he didn't really mean it. Jesus comes, and he really means it, and he calls his people, the banished people like us, with sinful, broken hearts, with a catalog of error after error after error. And he calls us to come to himself. Come. Luke chapter 14, 23, as he tells this parable, the master told the servant, go out to the roads and to the country, country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. We are called to come. Not like Absalom here, who's left in a state of limbo. Am I coming fully back? Am I not? Am I going to be killed? Am I not? Jesus calls. And he welcomes. Think of another prodigal son that we hear of in the New Testament. He's not half accepted back by his father. He doesn't remain in that state of limbo. Father doesn't say to him to come back, but then spend two years in an outhouse somewhere in the distance of the farm. He doesn't push him away. He doesn't try to forget him. He doesn't have the difficult relationship encounter. Instead, the prodigal son is welcomed by his father running towards him. A party, clothes, a ring, and a banquet. Now, we see the difference here, don't we, between Absalom and David and the story of the prodigal son. You see, David doesn't rush to accept his son, and neither does the son come in true repentance to the father. Sin upon sin upon sin. Yet, verse 14 rings true for us that God brings away that the banished may be welcomed back. And the plan was simply that his son, the Lord Jesus, would come. The true king above all other kings, 
who would come could bring us back, the banished people, back into the king's presence, fully reconciled to the king. The relationship mended, harmony between us and the king again. In this story, the woman of Tekoa, what does she want David to do? She wants David to love more than his passion for justice. David, love your son. All the wrongs that he has done, don't worry about them. We'll come back to them but just love him enough. Bring him back in. How does our God work? Our God is a God of love and of justice. One does not trump the other. So where do we see love and justice perfectly come together? At the cross of Calvary. Psalm 85 verse 10 says this, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. At the cross is where we find sorrow and love flowing mingled down. So this morning, for us here in this place, we cannot be like Absalom. Absalom comes and he expects full reconciliation because he's the king's son, because he has done the right thing, because he has great potential. We read of him here, this beautiful, handsome man, like no one else in all of the kingdom. And he's relying on this. Instead of humbling himself before the king and coming in repentance, he relies upon who he is. And friends, this morning, many of us, many of us, often rely upon who we are. And what we have done for reconciliation between us and our God and between us and King Jesus. But if we stand before the king and we expect to be reconciled because of who we are, because of what denomination that we belong to, because of how much good we do or how much we give, we'll be very surprised at the answer. Jesus died, the king of kings, for us to bring us the banished ones back, so we must come this morning on our knees with our hearts pleading to the king for forgiveness because we realize that we are in a state of rebellion. So this morning, we know that we are called through his name by the power of the Spirit, Jesus the King of kings, the Lord of lords, calling banished sinners home, bringing us back, welcoming us back to himself. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone who can do this. He welcomes and he calls just as we are. He doesn't need us to clean ourselves up. He just calls us and he welcomes us if we will come in repentance. And then our second problem in this passage and our last problem is this. Absalom commits treason. He commits treason against the king. In the chapter 15, we see this brief encounter in chapter 14, verse 33, this frosty encounter between Absalom and his father. He bows before him. The king kisses him, and that's it. In the chapter 15, we see how he plots. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses, and he starts to gain power. And this is him taking steps towards committing treason. Now, we all know different stories of treason, don't we? 
the gunpowder plot with Guy Fox. We all know of it. 1605, how he tries to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Perhaps if you're into football, you will also know of a great treason that happened between Arsenal and United fans whenever Robin Van Persie transferred from Arsenal to Manchester United and helped us to win the league. Just wanted to put that out there. And then there was another great, great treason that happened. Some people in Hill Street this morning might be familiar with the name Johnny Hampton. I know Rick's here, and Rick knows Johnny. What, what great treason did Johnny commit? Well, he was a Portadown rugby player, and he transferred to Lurgan, and he committed treason, but he came back again to Portadown, and he was fully restored and adopted back. Now, in this story of treason, here we see Absalom's heart, and his heart is all about himself. He gathers his horses he unveils his political manifesto. Popular support is gathered. False promises are made. And he's power-hungry. He's full of ambition. And the son snatches out at his father's throne. But back to verse 14 of chapter 14. Absalom had been banished. But now he had been brought back. But he was still estranged from his father. He was a stranger to his father. He was distant. Nothing was going to change in their relationship. And David doesn't seem to be much better at trying to resolve things. He keeps his son at a distance as a stranger. Why? Because it's easier that way. Absalom maybe reminded David of himself like father, like son. A sexual sin, a murder, all of the consequences before him. David's poor handling of the situation, his own sin, it's all manifested now in Absalom. And then Absalom's daughter, David's great-granddaughter, Tamar. So no matter the reason, the relationship is broken, the two are estranged, and rebellion is born, treason by a son against his father, and much of what we see in this father-son relationship could be true of us in our relationship to our heavenly father. Broken, sin destroying and wrecking our relationship. Us choosing to be a stranger to our father because it's easier. And then in our distance, in our distance from him, we spark our own rebellion and we reject King Jesus. And like Absalom, we reject the king that God provides. Why? Because we know better. We know how to run things around here. We know what is best for our life and our own little kingdoms. We snatch at the power. We sit on the throne of our own hearts. We crown ourselves as king. And notice where Absalom implements his plan from. He's inside the king's city, isn't he? He looks like a loyal subject. He actually looks like he's working hard for the betterment of the kingdom. This morning, do we think that there are people who sit in churches who look like they're working hard for the kingdom, but have never repented? They look like loyal subjects, but really, they're on the throne of their own hearts. How does that play out a little bit for us? So we think of this. Well, perhaps the person is on the throne of their bank account. King Jesus, he isn't allowed to rule there. 
Perhaps they're on the throne of their thoughts. King Jesus, he can't rule there. On the throne of their own social time, King Jesus, he isn't allowed in that district. On the throne of how they use their phone, King Jesus has no say over what I do on it. On the throne of their relationships, King Jesus has no jurisdiction there. And we would rather be like Absalom. Often we would rather be like him. We'd rather come into the kingdom, sit in the kingdom, look like we're in the kingdom, but really in our hearts commit treason and make it all about ourselves. Instead of sitting under the authority of King Jesus, we want ourselves to be on our throne. Friends, this morning, King Jesus is king over all. Why? Because you see, unlike the estranged Absalom, King Jesus enables us to be adopted back into the family. That sin that once meant that we were banished, King Jesus has dealt with it. That sin that once meant that we were strangers from our heavenly Father, King Jesus has dealt with it. King Jesus came to deal with it all, and he came to deem us just before the judge so that we could be adopted back. So as the Father sits on the throne, as the Father sits and as the Father judges, he sees Jesus instead of us, and he sees his perfection instead of our sin, instead of our failures, instead of our rebellious heart. And if we ask him for forgiveness, he deems us just, he deems us right because of Jesus. And then the Father, the judge, comes off the throne. And he doesn't just deem us right, but instead he comes and he takes us. And he comes to our chains and he breaks our chains and releases the chains of this world and the handcuffs that have been on our hands and the marks that we bear. And he starts to walk with us. And he says, yeah, I've deemed you just. I've cleared you of the death penalty that was upon your head. But I'm also going to give you a new home. And he walks with us. And he takes us into his house. And he gives us a new identity. And he welcomes us. And he shows us all of our brothers and sisters from everywhere. A great family. A loved family. A wonderful family. Joyful. Caring. And all because of his son, the King Jesus. And our Father watches us. He watches us as we come into his kingdom. And he watches us as we play and as we create and as we build and as we move. And he listens to us. And he gives us unlimited access to himself. He says, you can call me Abba, Daddy, Father. So brothers and sisters this morning, stop our rebellious thoughts. As we have been adopted into this kingdom, why is it that we, we run to the fence and we stand up on our tiptoes and we look over at, at what's outside of God's kingdom and we think to ourselves, oh, if only I were over there. The Father has adopted us into his house. And perhaps, friend, as we close this morning, you're sitting here, and what I've just described, you have no idea about. 
You don't know God as Father. You are estranged from Him. You know that there is a great distance. You know that you have been banished because of your sin. You know that you're longing for that to be fixed, but you don't know how. This morning, the king calls, and the king welcomes, and the king adopts. He asks you just to simply come and ask for forgiveness. So friends, put down the weapons of rebellion this morning. Stop the resistance. Don't commit treason any longer. This is a battle that you'll not win against King Jesus. So come off the throne of your own heart. Take the crown off your own head and come to the feet of Jesus. See the scars on his hands. See the scars on his forehead that he has suffered as he bore the crown of thorns for us. Kneel and ask for forgiveness and pledge allegiance to Jesus. We are not banished. We are called and welcomed. We are not estranged. We are adopted. Our God is the one who calls, the one who welcomes, and the one who adopts. We praise God for his word to us. Amen.